Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. We are leaving behind the Pentateuch. Turn to the book of Joshua. Yesterday we left the Israelites struggling with God, struggling with their fears. They had not been able to enter the promised land because they were afraid that they weren't going to uh, succeed in their venture. They were afraid that they were going to get beaten up and conquered by the Canaanites who owned the land that God had promised to the Israelites. They weren't trusting God. They didn't believe that God could do what he said he could do. Even though God had shown these very same people that he could part the Red Sea, that he could lead them through the desert with a column of smoke by day and fire by night. The manna they were eating every day, did they appreciate the manna? They got sick and tired of that same old stuff again. What? Macaroni and cheese again? Think of the Israelites in terms of a child growing up. They're now in the terrible two stages. Like mom and dad are always there saying, here's the food. There's always food for you. We're always providing for you. And the terrible two child, you know what he's like. It's dinner time. Time to eat. No. Come on. Eat your vegetables. No. Come on, it's good for you. No. Well, the Israelites were in that stage. Come on, there's the land full of milk and honey. It's a wonderful place for you to be. No. And God said, okay, if you are going to go into this promised land, you have to be ready for it. Because there's a lot of pagan worship there. And in order for you to enter into this land and remain my people, remember what covenant means? It means... I am your God, and you are my people. God is saying to these people, in order for you to remain my people, and for you to keep me as your God, you have to be able to withstand the influences of the pagan territory. And the only way you're going to be able to withstand them is to not even have them around. God is saying, I can't even put you near a temptation, because every time you're near it, you cave in. You're not even near it and you cave in. I put you down there at the bottom of Mount Sinai. My son Moses is up in the mountain getting all the rules and regulations about how you can stay close to me. And you're down there. You're far from Canaan. And you're starting to worship a Canaan God. So God said in his great wisdom, the only way for them to survive and keep this covenant with me and remain in my love and protection is for them to enter into a land that does not have any other influences which meant that they were going to have to wipe out the Canaanites. Seems harsh to us today, but remember, we're dealing with terrible twos. We're dealing with people who were extremely easily influenced by the outside forces. We are easily influenced by the forces around us. I mean, we see commercials, for example, that says that in order for us to be likable, we have to use the right deodorant. You know why God created us to have a need for deodorant? It wasn't so that he could put money into the pockets of deodorant companies. It was to remind us that we're dying. We're a rotting piece of flesh. Our time on earth is limited. So we had better get our life in order and get our life connected to God so that we can spend eternity with him. We don't want to remember that our life is limited. We are so easily influenced by the outside forces. The Israelites were a hundred times, maybe a thousand times more easily influenced than we are today. So God needs them to totally trust him, to totally do things his way. Like the two-year-old who you take to the mall, 
You have to keep him close because he'll just go running off and who knows what could happen to him. So when they say, nope, we're not going into this promised land. As a matter of fact, God, give us another leader. Moses wants us to go in here. God says, all right, forget it, guys. You have to grow up some more. Back into the desert for you. You know, they weren't lost in the desert for 40 years. They knew exactly where they were. It's just that God was saying, you can't go into the Canaanite land yet. It's not time yet. A whole generation, all the scaredy cats, had to die off. And the new generation, meanwhile, was being raised by the Lord, by the leaders, by Moses as the head leader, and Aaron, his brother, as the head priest. They were being raised to trust God. It was time to grow out of the terrible two stage and get a little bit older. A three-year-old isn't quite as, where are you drawing the line? I'm going to try to cross it as a two-year-old. A three-year-old is cute, you know, it's like you can play with them and they have fun and you can say cute things to them and they have fun with you back. So God is waiting for these kids to grow up enough to be able to go into the promised land and do whatever he says to do. What's happened here, Moses has died now, and it's Joshua's turn to take over. Remember what the name Joshua means? What's the Greek word for Joshua? Jesus. Joshua is the one to take the people into the promised land. Jesus is the one who takes us into our promised land. It's all connected. And by the way, in Deuteronomy, which is a little bit backwards here from where we just left, but in Deuteronomy 34, verse 9 is the first written down in Scripture baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom since Moses had laid hands upon him. Moses was able to be the leader he was because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was alive and well, but only a few people were filled with, were gifted by the Holy Spirit in his fullness. The prophets were. Great leaders were, but not the general populace. It wasn't until Pentecost, after Jesus' resurrection, that the Holy Spirit became available to everybody. And Moses was filled with the Holy Spirit in order to do what he was doing. And when he was about to die, he passed that on to Joshua, so that Joshua could do what he was called to do. See, God always empowers us. Whatever he calls us to do, he empowers us to do it. When you feel an urge to get involved in some parish ministry or some diocesan ministry or an AIDS ministry or something in your child's school, you've prayed on it and you feel like God is saying, not just somebody else saying or your pride saying, but God is saying, do this. You can better believe that no matter how difficult it ever looks like it's getting, God will empower you to do it or he never would ask you to do it. He gives us whatever it is that we need in order to do what he asks us to do. So Joshua gets baptized in the Holy Spirit because Moses lays his hands on him. And this is also a passing of the ministry of Moses to Joshua. And it was done so all the people knew about it. Under Joshua's leadership, they enter the promised land into the territory of Canaan. And if you look at your map, the territory map... Find where Jericho is. We've got the Sinai area, and we've got uh, like a big fat branch of the river from the Red Sea coming up, and then a a thin part of the river going up, and, and it almost leads up to Jericho. 
If you picture the Israelites following up that little river to reach Jericho, it's where they're at now. They're on a road that will lead them into the heart of the Canaanite land. Joshua chapter 3 is a story about how they were facing another situation like the previous generation had. They had come to a place where they had to cross through water and there was no bridge. And there was no way around it. So Joshua did the same thing that Moses had done. He parted the waters. It didn't just happen once, it happened twice. It's interesting to note that Canaan's chief god, Baal... And this god Baal is going to show up as a challenge to the Israelites again and again. He, as the chief god, had more power than the god of the river. So when the Israelites come to a river and their god parts the river, it's a way that God is saying, Look, folks, my power is greater than the river god. My power, I'm going to show you, is even greater than Baal. Okay, moving ahead to chapter 5. To conquer Canaan, they have to pass by Jericho. Jericho, you know, is a key city, so key that it is very well fortified. The Israelites look it over and say, how in the world are we going to conquer this city? If we don't conquer it, they will never let us through. I'm sure everybody here knows the story of how God got them to conquer Jericho. Go to the very end of chapter 5. Start with verse... 13. While Joshua was near Jericho, he raised his eyes and saw one who stood facing him, drawn sword in hand. Now, when when the Bible says he saw one, if it were a human being, it would have said he saw a man facing him. But this is like saying he saw one like God or one like the Son of God. It's an angel. He saw one who stood facing him, drawn sword in hand. And Joshua went up to him and said, Are you one of us or one of them? We've got to conquer Jericho. So are you on our side or their side? And then verse 14, the angel replies, Neither. I'm not on your side or their side. I'm on God's side. Because God, as much as the Israelites belong to him, he doesn't like killing. He doesn't like war. He doesn't hate the people who live at Jericho. He loves them too. He's not fighting with the Israelites because he hates the people at Jericho. He's going to help them defeat Jericho because it's the only way the Israelites are going to be able to enter into the promised land and not be influenced by the pagan gods and pagan worship. So the angel says, neither, I don't belong to you or them. I am the captain of the host of the Lord, the host of angels. And I have just arrived. The Israelites have just arrived at Jericho and the angels have just arrived. God brings the help that we need At the moment we need it, not any sooner. So when we're asking him for help and we're wondering when is the help going to come, it'll come at the perfect time, just when you really need it, even if we think we need it sooner. Then Joshua fell prostrate to the ground in worship and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? He's a very humble man. He's saying, You're from God, therefore I'm your servant. The captain of the host of the Lord replied to Joshua. By the way, we assume this was the archangel Michael because he is the commander in the book of Revelations of the army of angels. The captain of the host replied to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy. And Joshua obeyed. Chapter 6, verse 2. 
The Lord tells, I have already delivered Jericho and its king into your power. It doesn't look like it yet, but I've already done it. It's finished. It's done. When we ask for God to help us solve our problems, it's done the moment we've asked or maybe even sooner. We don't see it yet. It's not manifest in the physical world yet. But as far as God's concerned, the moment he decides something, it's done. Just like in the book of Genesis, he said, let there be light, and there was light. The moment God says something, it exists. And then he's given the instructions, have all the soldiers circle the city, marching around it, and so on. We know how they conquered Jericho. The reason why they were given such strange instructions as to how to conquer them, I mean, God could have used any method. God could have said, everybody sit down in a big group and I will cover the sun and cause an earthquake. And, you know, he could have used any method. But he had the people do something really bizarre. Just marching around Jericho for the exact amount of time that God said because he's looking for obedience. And then just toot your horns and throw a big party. Just make a lot of noise. Stomp your feet. The reason why he's picking this strange method is to show that it's not your doing, Israelites. It's my doing. I am your God and you are my people. I am the one who is doing this. Because what you're doing isn't fighting any battle. You're just marching around and blowing trumpets. It's part of teaching that little three-year-old who God really is. And that he can be trusted. And that he is mighty and all-powerful. God said, all right, I'm going to do this for you. But you've got to be warned about something. You're in danger here. This is your first battle. It's going to be your first victory. But you're going to enter into a pagan town. You're going to defeat this town. But if you are to stay pure and free from their influence, you can't even take the books out of their houses. Because you'll see the books are about the pagan gods. Or you can't take any of their their silver or gold because some of them are made into statues to Baal or the other gods. You can't take any anything from this town because it's corrupt it does not belong to me this is nothing sacred here and if you take something that's not sacred you are going to be influenced by its worldliness or by its demonicness because it has to do with the worship of evil so he says take nothing for yourself give me everything I'll take care of it Whatever booty you find in that town, when you're done conquering it, just give it to me. Don't keep anything for yourself. This is really, really important because you guys are so weak, you're going to be influenced otherwise. So what happens after they defeat Jericho, one of the soldiers took just a little bit for himself. In this big army, one soldier, only one, took a little bit of booty for himself. What can this hurt? I go to work every day. They have plenty of pens. I like the pens that they have here. They're more expensive pens than I got at home, and it's more fun to write with. So I'm going to take one pen home. What can it hurt? Technically, okay, it's stealing, but what can one pen hurt? They'll never miss it. Therefore, it's not a sin. One soldier took the little bit of booty home, and here's what happened. This is all part of Chapter 6. When it was time for the next battle, which is in Chapter 7... God withdrew his support from the battle. Because of the little bit of sin of one soldier, God said, you didn't do it my way the last time, therefore, you're on your own. And what happens? The Israelite army is defeated at Ai. 
Ai is the name of the next town in chapter 7. When Joshua found out about it, when the rest of the Israelites found out why this defeat had happened, because who had committed the sin, they took that man. Now, this sounds a little harsh, but remember we're dealing with little bratty little kids. The guilty man and his whole household were stoned to death. The reason why the punishment was harsh, and in those days this was actually kind of a light punishment, because remember how barbaric people were. If somebody punched my eye and blinded it, my family would wipe out your whole family. That's the way typical society was in those days. So it didn't seem that harsh, because what the people were learning from this was, if we don't destroy this one family with their sinfulness, their sinfulness is going to infect the whole community and we will all be wiped out. And God wanted to teach that they had to take his commandments seriously. That one little sin has a ripple effect that, and this is true for us today, that one little sin has a ripple effect that affects the whole community. This is why when we go to the sacrament of reconciliation... We've got an advantage that just going directly to God for forgiveness does not supply. In the sacrament of reconciliation, this is why that sacrament is so important. The priest there in that sacrament is not just representing Jesus. He is representing the whole body, all the community, the whole family, the whole church. And when he absolves us, when he gives us God's forgiveness, he is also giving us the forgiveness of the whole body. He does it in the name of the church in addition to in the name of God. This is because every sin we commit has a ripple effect. We may not see the ripple effect. The obvious example is if I'm mad at Ralph, he gets upset and gets mad at David, our son, who gets upset, who picks on his sister, who gets upset, who kicks the dog. But in real life, it isn't usually that visible. In the New Testament, I think it's St. Paul that says it. When one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. When one rejoices, the whole body rejoices. Now, when I'm suffering, did you know you were suffering with me? Probably not. But in God's perspective from where he looks at our world from eternity, he sees things we can't see. Someday we'll see it. When we have our personal judgment day, when, when we die and we see everything clearly, we understand things the way we don't now. Our minds are clouded. St. Paul said we're veiled. The veil is removed when we die. And we understand how we are all connected. We're all connected by love and love is God. So we're all connected by God. And anything that we do that breaks that connection, it hurts everybody. We're connected too. Everything unloving that I do, because love is what connects us, I am breaking that connection when I'm unloving. I am connected to each of you. And you're all connected to me. And when I sin, you are all not getting the fullness of love that you're supposed to have by God's plan. When we go to heaven, we are fully in all of that connectedness. And the love is fully flowing in the connections between us. And there's nothing else but love flowing. That's one reason why heaven is so wonderful. And one reason why Jesus said that in heaven there is no marriage. Because as close as I am to Ralph... Now, not only will I be closer to him in heaven because our love will be freely flowing, not hampered by anything of this world, but I will equally be loving all of you and everyone else up in heaven. 
There will be specialness between Ralph and me because we have a history together from this planet that you and I won't have. And we won't forget how special we were to each other on Earth. And we'll still have lots to talk about, just the two of us, that maybe I won't be interested in talking to you guys about. But you and I will all be loving each other as powerfully, intimately, as Ralph and I love each other at our best. But even better than that, we'll be loving each other. So we are all connected. And when this one soldier broke the connection with community, the whole community was infected by it. So they wiped out that part of the disease, like removing a diseased organ from the body. For the next seven years, Israel went forward conquering more and more of the territory of Canaan. And as they moved ahead, the Canaanite people got reports that that town next door was defeated. And here's how God helped them. I mean, many, many times the Israelites were outnumbered by those that they were attacking. And yet... They defeated them. It was a witness by God to the Canaanites, as well as to the Israelites, that God was in charge and he was greater than any other God. So some of the Canaanites began to convert to Judaism. And if Israel had stayed the course, probably whoever they didn't kill in conquering them would have been converted over. Probably they would have been able to stop the killing because the whole nation would have converted. But you know how little kids are. Even when something is going good, you take them to Disney World, they get tired and they start to get cranky, and they don't care whether the next ride's going to be just as fun as the last ride. They want to go home, or they just want to sit there on the bench having ice cream. But come on, if we don't get in line, we're not going to get to everything today. I just want to sit here and have my ice cream, leave me alone. Well, that's how the Israelites were becoming. And because they didn't want to put forth the effort to do what they had been doing that was working out so well, some of the Israelites said, enough of this. I'm just going to set up my home for my family over here. And even though I have some Canaanite neighbors, instead of trying to convert them or get rid of them, I'm just going to say, hi, friend. Do you mind if I set up my home here? Wherever they could find a place to set up a home, they set up their home. They began to intermarry with the Canaanites. Because of that, they began to mix the Canaanite religion with their own religion. When their religions began to get mixed, their love of God began to fade. And with the fading of their love for God, there was a decrease in their morality, decrease in their motivations to be moral people. How many times have we taken that journey? We get tired of living the Christian life. We make compromises with the world. And our love, our enthusiasm, our zeal for God fades. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, Jesus is saying, I know your works, your labor, your endurance, that you cannot tolerate the wicked. You have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not and discovered that they are imposters. And this is similar to what could have been said to the Israelites then. I know your works, your labor. You've been fighting hard. You've been doing what I've been asking. You've been enduring through this. And that you've not been tolerating the wicked Canaanites. You've been destroying them like I've asked. Moreover, you have endurance and have suffered for my name. This is verse 3. And you have not grown weary. This is the Israelites before they grew weary or at the beginning of the time they've grown weary. You know, it's like God saying, congratulations, you've made it this far. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you, you have lost the love you had at first. 
Now, some of you who have different versions other than the New American Bible, the NAB, does yours say it a little bit differently? What is said that is lost there besides the word love? Some versions of the Bible say you lost your zeal. You lost your enthusiasm. Now, the word enthusiasm comes from Greek, and it means entheos. It means in God. To have enthusiasm means we are in God. How enthusiastic are we to get up each morning? How enthusiastic are we to go to those jobs that God has placed us in? Or to visit those neighbors who God has told us to go to that we can't stand? Jesus here is saying, realize how far you have fallen, verse 5. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The lampstand means the light of Christ. We can't have the light within us if we are losing our love, if our love for God is fading. We are to be excited about what God has us doing, to be working enthusiastically in ministry, to be loving our family members enthusiastically, to be involved enthusiastically with everyone God has placed in our lives. And I don't think anybody here in this room, including myself, can say that, yeah, we're doing it just the way we're supposed to be. And here Jesus is saying, repent from that. Because when you are not enthusiastically in my love and giving out my love, you have some darkness in you. Your lampstand is not lit anymore, at least not fully. You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit GNM.org today.